The information contained in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute investment or financial advice. You should seek tailored advice that is specific to your circumstances before making any investment decision. The Good Investing Podcast connects you with successful investors and business leaders who invest in or are experts in a range of industries, but do it with a difference. I just got to tell you, Matt, as a side thing, um, I'm actually writing uh, a, uh, not a thesis, but just an opinion piece at the moment on the parallels between flying a uh, turbo prop twin engine Cessna and being the CEO of a fund management company. And I think you'll be totally blown away by the extent of the parallels between the two. So I should have it ready in the um, next little while. I can't wait to share it with you, actually. Just as long as um, they both involve a safe landing. Yeah, um, yeah, a lot of risk mitigation, yeah, but absolutely. that's certainly one major part of it. But there are others as well. Welcome to the Good Investing Podcast. I'm Matt Nicard, CEO of Ethical Partners, and welcome to part B of our discussion with Andrew Swartz, co-founder and group managing director of Qualitas. Now in part A, Andrew gave us an introduction to Qualitas, one of the largest alternative real estate fund managers in Australia. And we had a great discussion. We looked at the parallels between the current business environment and previous cycles, as well as the impact of higher interest rates on the company. Now, in part B, we dig a bit deeper into one of the Qualitas funds that we like in particular, the Build to Rent Impact Fund. In an Australian first, the debt fund attaches certain sustainability criteria to its lending criteria. And we also play the now very popular Either or game. And Andrew tells us about a special project he's working on. But you'll have to wait until the end of the episode to hear what that is. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Now, you mentioned Build to Rent, a fascinating asset class. So you've got the, the Build to Rent Impact Fund. Um, now, that was um, cornerstone by the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. And as I understand, Andrew, it's an Australian first. Um, it includes kind of minimum sustainability criteria as, as a part of its investment criteria um, and is also Australia's first Build to Rent debt platform. I'd, I'd like to kind of understand a bit more about that. Where are you at with that? Um, you know, what's the scope for growth there, you know, investment opportunities and, and so on? So we're, we're very proud of our built rent impact fund. I, I do think to the best of my knowledge, it's, it's an Australian first in terms of uh, debt funds in the market that are really focused on uh, greenhouse gas emission reduction. Um, and we felt it, it generally as a, as a macro statement, what I would say is it's difficult when you're a debt provider to really cause change in terms of ESG. Uh, notwithstanding, Qualitas actually does do a whole lot of things about ESG ratings, even on our, on our debt transactions. You know, it can be more, more limited. And what we felt is let, let's find a pocket of capital that's heavily required by the market and let's really try and give people maximum encouragement to adopt greenhouse gas emission reduction if you want to take advantage of this pocket of capital that, that we have in place. As you know, banks, um, particularly on um, high-density apartments love to have pre-sales in order to, to finance. 
Um, the one thing about build terrain is you don't get pre-sales. That made it more difficult for the banks, at least for the time being. And what are the what are the level of pre-sales that you normally require on a on a build to sell type development? Uh, normally, I would say Matt, we'd be up around um, you know fifty to sixty, seventy percent. Um, it's it's a more and that's before you land a dollar, right? That that's right. Yeah, and uh, you know we do like the comfort of knowing you know what what is our source of repayment, but. Um, that that also makes for probably a separate a separate question and a longer conversation, but but I think on on the build to rent uh, uh, you don't get pre sales and so um, we designed a fund uh, entirely you know at our own initiative where we basically said if you can demonstrate a thirty five percent reduction in greenhouse. Um, emissions relative to the current building code, then you will qualify for uh, this particular fund. And what we found is that um, we didn't have to convince developers too hard. I guess, you know, some were motivated by accessing what was seen to be really difficult capital. But certainly, you know, the vast majority of them were excited by the concept and um, went over and above and beyond the guidelines that we set for being able to access that that level of capital, and uh, and and basically, you know, the guidelines have to do with, you know, the Nature's rating where we target seven stars, um, you know, various. I mean, I can take you through it if you wish, but you know, the design, passive design principles, and um, you know, you, the use of renewable energy and the like. Um, you know, we've got we've got a list of those guidelines, and uh, and yeah, developers really embraced it, and uh, it's something we're really proud of at Qualitas. And CFC uh, was our first investor in it. Thankfully, they've been you know a great initial partner for us, and we'd certainly love to be expanding it. And and how many projects have you got underway or got your eyes on at the moment? Uh, we've committed to our first project. We've got a pipeline literally of about uh, five five other projects. I'd say we're in serious due diligence on uh, two other projects at the moment. And it doesn't sound like a lot, but when you add it all up, um, it's probably in excess of a billion dollars worth of uh, gross assets. And, and for us, really, the main thing is um, it's it's not so much the deployment and the finding of the projects. It's the raising of the capital and getting you know big institutional investors to see it as exciting as we do. And in that regard, uh, we're in extensive discussions with two offshore groups about that particular fund. So unfortunately, not in a position today to make a concrete statement about it other than the pipeline's solid and, you know, we're, we're making good ground on um, our discussions with offshore instos in regards to that particular fund. Yeah, I think one of the benefits you, I know you touched on is just also the, the lack of correlation there between the cash flows in a build-to-rent development versus, say, office and retail. Um, very successful format overseas, still very early days here. But I think anyone who's rented from a private landlord for an extended period of time will appreciate the benefits, this is my personal view, the benefits of a build-to-rent um, development managed by a professional manager. Um, so I think over time, Australia will adopt the concept quite successfully, I would have thought. Yeah, Again. maybe the other comment I'd make about it, Matt, as well, is our, our build-to-rent is very much focused on the the 21 to 39-year-olds. 30, you know, they're, um, they're mobile and, you know, they, they you know generally have a different 
um, investment velocity to, uh, I'm guessing we're roughly the same age, um, to our, our generation that, you know, just saw ownership as the, the holy grail for, you know, future, uh, you know, future, uh, wealth creation. And, and I think that, you know, that generation design principles, efficiency levels, um, you know, having, having, energy shutdown switches on apartments and, and monitoring systems are really important to them. You know, I, I think in our day, unfortunately, you know, it wasn't really something that, you know, we, we overly thought of. But you can't say that about this, you know, younger generation, thankfully, that's coming up. And so, again, I, I think that they're discerning and, and I think they will absolutely appreciate the design benefits in the build to rent that they're um, occupying. I was reading the other day, the Property Council of Australia say that the buildings account for more than 50% of Australia's electricity use and almost a quarter of carbon emissions. So, um, this type of format, um, you know, does will go some way. It makes a start in reducing that. And obviously, a lot of other property companies are, are doing similar things, but not so specifically as in uh, build to rent that you guys are. Just on the overall ESG scoring system, so just taking a step back, maybe over the over the top of everything you do. I know it's something we've talked about a lot. I know you do consider those um, from a risk um, perspective and also just from a, a, a broader values perspective as well. Just run us through that that scoring system on every investment you make and, and how it works and, and how you look at that type of thing. Yeah, so it's, it's a proprietary system and uh, we're really we're really proud of it. And as you've actually outlined in the question, we do it on every single transaction, both private credit and uh, equity uh, investments that that we make. Uh, it's based on a on a star system uh, where we literally rate everything on a three, two, or one star. Three three is the best practice uh, star that you can you can achieve, and it's it's based on uh, mainly qualitative factors, but those qualitative factors are around um, items such as the carbon footprint um, of of the project or the building. Uh, contamination of the actual land and uh, the commitment by the owners to remediate that land. You know, we look at the design standards and uh, materials that are, have been or will be used in uh, the development of the particular building, the various labour practices, so OCH health and safety, uh, depending on what it is and where it is, you know, we can go and look at um, the governance structures of the borrowers and our partners, the diversity of um, people on 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 their boards and within their workforce. Uh, you know, we we look to their um, commitment to legal and regulatory compliance and how they they monitor um, those areas internally. And probably and most importantly is their business ethics as as people and individuals. And uh, you know, and we do draw a line where we say. Uh, you know, we're just not happy with something that may have occurred in the past that we think was ethically borderline, and therefore we just prefer not 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 to deal in that particular situation. So we go through that, and it's a scoring system. Uh, it certainly then forms a section of every investment paper that we do, and uh, and it's fair to say not everybody's a three, uh, but if you're um, a two or uh, or below, uh, you know, one is our lowest, which is below standard. 
if there's conviction by the investment team to do that deal, then they will have to explain why there's such high conviction and what the remediation plan is. The, the question I'm, I'm often asked is, well, then what do you do with all this data? It sounds great, but where to from there? Well, I think the answer is we track it. You know, we say on average we were, you know, um, 2.3 on our rating scale for every investment we did this year, but we want to keep getting closer to three than, you know, two in, in respect of what it is we do. So for us, it's just an internal measure that, um, you know, we want to keep pushing up on. But we do spend the time with our counterparties and our partners and our borrowers talking to them about what we believe they can further do in this whole area. So um, I think it works well for us. It's certainly um, welcomed by our investors and our staff absolutely love it. Look, I I think it's great that you have been doing that for for so long and doing it as a private company. Uh, You know, there's a lot of market pressure now for listed companies to to take that broader approach depending on their business. Um, You know, we've talked about it a lot. Um, you know, one of the reasons why we own the shares in in Qualitas is because you have done it for an extended period of time, and it's not something you've just manufactured post post the IPO. So, um, no, we're quite impressed with that process. Right, we're going to change gears here, Andrew. I've kind of got one eye on the clock here. Um, we've got some general questions here that we do ask um, almost everyone on this podcast, and love to get your perspective on this as a business owner and business leader. Uh, what's the most important aspect of good leadership you think is most often overlooked? Oh, I think it's your ability to evolve yourself when you're in a leadership position. And for me, it was really about saying, you know, I was the founder of an absolute startup company that, you know, didn't even have a name uh, when when we got going all, all the way through to being an ASX listed entity managing $4.22 billion of external capital. And really, you know, as you evolve through that process, knowing what to focus on, how to spend your time, um, you know, leading people through your evolution and transition, I think is a really, you know, an important skill set. So um, I, I think, yeah, I would say just your ability to evolve yourself as the business, you know, evolves. All right. Now, as that business evolves and you've obviously started off as a really entrepreneurial and free-thinking, innovative company. So as you evolve and get bigger and get more institutionalised, how do you keep that entrepreneurial culture? How do you keep that same culture moving forward? It's, it's really important to maintain it. I, I think you've got to take the good out of being institutional because there's some really important factors there around risk and governance. When you're managing third-party capital, you know, I, I have a saying internally that, uh, you know, if heaven forbid we were ever to lose money on any investment that we undertook, it has to be because of a risk that we knew we were taking. And unfortunately for us, that risk crystallized and unfortunately, you know, we, we suffered a loss. And I think that has to be deemed an acceptable, an acceptable loss. But something that I would say is totally unacceptable is losing money because of bad governance and risk management. And I think. That's the good side of being institutional. Uh, you know, Qualitas has really been a thriving business because of the entrepreneurial spirit, you know, the ability to see things that perhaps, you know, people can't see in large institutions. And I think that a lot of that goes to the culture of the firm, how, how you um, 
motivate your staff to step out and not be fearful of making an idea or a suggestion, you know, to have a, a saying that there's no such thing as a dumb idea or a dumb question or the most senior person in the room is actually the person with the smartest idea, not the person by rank. And, I, and if you can instill those cultural pillars within the firm, then I think you can really keep your entrepreneur spirit alive as you grow more institutional. So as you're growing and interviewing people and you've got two identical candidates, how do you determine how do you determine who to hire? I'd say diversity, diversity and diversity. So, you know, really trying to build, you know, multicultural and multi um uh you know, have uh, diverse gender based type uh teams being formed. Uh, you know, I've really come to learn the importance of that over the last um you know, 10, 10 years or so that, uh, you know, different people, different backgrounds just bring a different perspective to a situation. And uh, it's something that, you know, we, we believe strongly in. So, so if I've got two absolutely equal candidates, then that, that plays quite heavily on my mind. If they're equal in absolutely every way, um, I would say uh, really stepping away from someone's career experience and starting to understand life experience. And, and one of my um, most favourite interview questions, maybe I shouldn't be so public about this because when I interview people, I, I guess they're all going to prepare for it, is, you know, if you think about all of your life and every last experience you ever had, you know, what what's the thing that you achieve that you're most proud of? And you can only name one. And I think it's such a distilling question. Would you like me to answer that? <laughs> can you answer that, Matt? <laughs> no, I'd rather not. <laughs> <laughs> Probably starting up this firm, I would say. Um, but but I think that, you know, that really gives you a perspective on someone's life experience, which I think is as important as their academic records or, you know, their work experience. Yeah, at the end of the day, you're hiring the person, aren't you? Uh, the individual. Exactly. Um, yep. That's the most important thing. So, so can you mention something um, that you failed at? And what you've learned from it? Uh, failures. Uh, you know, I think, um, you know, failures have really come in the form of, uh, you know, uh, competitive um, investments where perhaps we weren't, you know, the winning party. F- and, you know, at the time they felt like very significant failures. Um, but over time we came to learn that literally, and I'm not trying to sound fatalistic in this next statement, but literally everything happens for a reason and our systems weed out those things that were never meant to be for us, even though at the exact moment of time you weren't 100% sure why it went somewhere else. And the reason was because your systems were doing what they were designed to do. So um, so I'd say um, just, you know, don't get too worried about the failures, you know, particularly if they're around things that you could have done and shouldn't have done. I'd say Qualitas, there's nothing that was so monumental that I have deep regret over. Uh, you know, it's really just, you know, uh, just running with your strengths and, and going with the things that are happening and not really dwelling on the things that didn't happen. All right. Now, winding down here more generally, what are you reading at the moment? Uh, well, <laughs> this is going to sound really terrible and, and really sad, actually, but I'm not reading anything. I'm, <laughs> You're the first I'm, person to have that answer. I like your honesty. Yeah, I'm reading um, The Economist. Um, I'm reading the AFR. I'm reading The Australian. I'm reading as much online news as I can. I'm reading about geo geopolitics that is going on. Um, and if I 
have any spare time at all, then um, I've got hobbies and I, one in particular, which I call my third passion in life and I direct a lot of, um, you know, my, well, actually I don't have a lot of spare time if I'm truly honest about it, um, but whatever spare time I've got, I really devote to that. So it's sad. Um, if you ask me what's the best book I've ever read, I'd say um, The Book of Virtues. It was the US best US selling book by William Bennett. And um, it was really popular around the mid-1990s. It's all about, um, you know, um, stories with morals in it, short stories. And I highly recommend it for, you know, just reminding ourselves what a great place the world is. All right. What advice would you give your 21-year-old 20, self? Uh, I would say just chill. <laughs> don't, be, don't be in a hurry. Uh, you know, I had this burning ambition to get out and create right right from, you know, the time I graduated from university. And what I would say to my 21-year-old self is a lot of things are going to happen and when they happen, you're not going to be sure about how it fits in and why it fits in. It's almost like you're doing a puzzle and every event in your life is a piece of that puzzle and it comes in a different shape and slightly different colours and it's at times hard to understand why and how you're putting each piece of the puzzle together but you will get to a stage of your life where you see the whole picture and every piece looks pretty good in respect of what you've done. So don't stress along the way about it. It all comes together as, as you get older. That's good advice, probably good advice for people who are 31, 41, 51 as well. Um, I think so. What, what keeps you up at night? Just just meeting my investor expectations. I think that, you know, we've raised a lot of capital. We've got a lot of very trusted relationships with uh, very significant investors and um, and just making sure that we're ahead of it, you know, that we've thought about literally everything we need to think about. Um, you know, a big part of our investment philosophy is being able to visualise what the short-term future holds. You know, what what will the next six to 12 months look like and what positions do we want to be holding in that environment? And you can just think about it all the time. And it's, I won't say it's just the middle of the night, it's 24-7. And, uh, and it's really meeting our investor expectations is the main thing on my mind. Well, it's, it's not, it's actually not, we probably should have covered this before, but it's actually not that dissimilar now to when you started. So you said you had 40 million bucks to invest in a turbulent time. You've now got 200 million bucks plus on the balance sheet, also to invest at a reasonably turbulent time. So probably should have drawn that parallel at the moment, but um, there's expectations yeah. around that as well, I guess. Yeah, I, actually, I was going to make that point too. Uh, you know, we raised 335 million in our IPO and uh, it's not hard, uh, you know, to, um, work out that Qualitas has largely not invested that capital. And you can just go to our last uh, upgrade guidance statement where, you know, we, we actually made that point uh, in respect of, you know, various underwrites that we were looking at at the time of that up updated guidance. And, you know, when we first IPO'd, which, you know, we IPO'd on the 17th of December, a lot of investors over January, February, March were, have you invested, have you invested? And, um, and it was exactly the same, Matt. You know, it was just be patient. Um, you know, really good things will appear. And now, you know, sitting there with substantial cash reserves at the turn of a market with interest rates up three and a half to 4% since we first started at the time of our IPO, you know, it has to be, you know, a, a very well-timed decision uh, in respect of, 
sparingly using our capital and waiting for the best. And and I think the parallel is exactly the same as 2008, 2009. I think at the time of recording, and I don't know the exact release date of this, I think the time of recording, you've got about half your market cap in cash. So it's a pretty good starting point. All right, where are we up to? Um, all right, so we're going to wind down even further here um, and we're going to ask you one more question actually. So the one person who's inspired you the most in your career? Uh, it's like my question about what's the one life event that you've had that you're the most proudest of. I, I can't give you one person. I, um, you know, it's I, – I think that um, I've been inspired probably by um, four or five different people along the way. Uh, and I've learned a lot from each of those from each of those people. You know, I'd, I'd say, uh, you know, firstly, uh, my father, who was a, an, an immigrant to this country, who faced many um, many battles and many many fears, but was a very successful property developer. Taught me a lot about cycles, how to think about risk and and downside. Uh, I can think about. Um, you know, a, a guy, um, I probably won't say their names, a guy, I, I won't say Warren Buffett or something like that because, um, you know, it's it's more granular for me than than, than that type of person. But um, a guy I worked with in the 1990s, darkest of dark times, and the ability of that person to show conviction and the, the journey to the light on the hill was just taught me so much about about leadership in very dark times. Um, I've worked with people who were incredible deep strategists. There were, you know, one one person in particular who was really able to visualise, you know, the world and the future over the next, you know, six months to, to two years. Uh, you know, a Japanese, uh, I, you know, very early in my career, I don't think you mentioned this, at, at the start was I worked for uh, Samwa Bank, a Japanese bank who painstakingly looked at risk for months and months and months, actually so long sometimes the deals weren't, weren't actually there anymore by the time you got to the end of it. But you couldn't get enough information to satisfy, you know, their due diligence and the importance of, of information and just learn so much um, from the risk person in, in that particular organisation. But I'd have to say um, on the flip side, there's a lot of people I can think of that I learned what not to do as well. You know, they were just awful at, at relationships and um, uh, innovation, uh, or, or, you know, being an entrepreneur, taking calculated risk. And I'd equally say I learned a lot of things of how not to behave as well. So it's a big answer. I'm sorry, I can't give you that big name, but but I think that's the truthful way I think about it. I think good leaders often take um, the best aspects and, and use those examples in, in the way they um, conduct themselves. So, no, good answer. All right, final thing, um, a game that my nine-year-old, who's now 10, um, often plays with me. Hasn't oh, actually, so I, I should be okay with <laughs> Hasn't played this game with me for a while. I should actually <clears throat> play with him again just to make sure we're authentic here. Anyway, I'm going to give you two choices and you can only pick one. So first thing that comes to your mind, they're not that difficult, by okay. the way. Um, in fact, <laughs> give them my best shot. I'm nervous. They're, they're pretty, they're pretty <laughs> feeble, actually. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, debt or equity? Debt in this market, debt. Build to rent or office? Uh, that's easy. Build, build to rent. <laughs> All right. To know a lot about something or something about a lot? Uh, know, know a lot about something. Go deep and narrow, but, but really understand it. All right. Now, I know you like um, you like aeroplanes. Top Gun, the original, or 
Top Gun Maverick? <laughs> uh, someone in my organization's been talking to you. Um, I would say uh, uh, Top Gun, the original, because it was just so, um, <laughs> you know, so inspiring at the time. Um, <laughs> I, I just got to tell you, Matt, I, as a side thing, um, I'm actually writing uh, a, uh, not a thesis, but a, just an opinion piece at the moment on the parallels between flying a, a turboprop twin engine Cessna and being the CEO of a fund management company. And I think you'll be totally blown away by the extent of the parallels between the two. So I should have it ready in the um, next little while. I can't wait to share it with you, actually. Just as long as um, they both involve a safe landing. Yeah, um, yeah, a lot of risk mitigation. Yeah, but absolutely. that's certainly one major part of it. But there are others as well. All right, excellent, Andrew. Look, you've been very generous with your time and uh, we really do appreciate you being a guest on the Good Investing Podcast. Yeah, no, I much. loved it. Thanks very much, Matt. Thanks, Andrew. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Good Investing Podcast. Subscribe to hear future episodes and for more information about Ethical Partners Funds Management, visit ethicalpartners.com.au.